a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome, one and all, to episode 130 of the Howie Games, part A, featuring a man whose journey has taken him from being a school teacher in Queensland to hosting and commentating massive sporting events for one of the biggest TV networks on the planet, Lee Diffie. The soul is back at the speedway. The fans are back in the stands. This is, and always will be, the greatest spectacle in racing. As they come to green, this is the Indianapolis 500 for everybody to see. So I was thinking about this. I don't want to roll out a bunch of old cliches for what Diff's achieved. See, this is how I see it. If someone turned Lee's story into a book and you picked it up and started reading, you'd swear it was fiction. It couldn't be true. It couldn't be true. How could old mate from Queensland go from teaching to calling motorbike racing in the sticks to fronting up to call the single biggest event at the Olympics for the biggest network there? I'm telling you, Lee Diffie is one remarkable cat. Added to that, no one has a bad word to say about Diff. He's inclusive as I was fortunate enough to find out when I was making my way in TV. Here's the life of the party, again, as I've seen many times, many times, especially post-Bathurst celebrations. And here's Luce. Sit in a hire car with Diff anytime, anywhere, watch him drive, listen to his stories, or, and this is classic Diff, feel your seat getting hotter and hotter in the middle of summer because Diff has flicked on the seat warmer button, thinks it's the funniest thing in the world when you look at him and you sweat pouring off you. That is classic Diffy. He is lovable. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Everybody has a diff being kind to them type of story and he's brilliant at what he does as professional and engaging as I've had the pleasure to work with. Lee Diffie is living proof that anything is possible if you set your mind to it. Enjoy his story. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery what is to be revealed King Selassie, come on children, trot with me, we want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that has achieved an extraordinary amount of success in his career from humble beginnings, now a lead broadcaster in the United States of America of all places and a man I've been fortunate enough to work with along the way, the great Lee Diffie. Diff, finally, welcome to the Howie Games. It is wonderful to see you, mate. How are you? I have walked around my hometown listening to episode after episode after episode of the Howie Games. I can't believe I'm finally here. <laughs> Mate, uh, I appreciate that and I, and I know you often text me saying you listen to this one or that one, so it's a great thrill for me to have you on. Where is your hometown? I live in a little town called Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is um, well, it's about half an hour from NBC Sports uh, headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. And we're about, by car, probably about an hour and 15, hour and 20 out of New York City. Wow. You know, the first thing when I saw you this morning, it popped up and you've got a ride motorbike T-shirt on. You've got Mo, uh, Monaco bikes, cars, all the pictures <laughs> in the background. And the first thing I thought to myself was, 
How lucky is this bloke that he works in his passion, which it obviously is to you, mate, motorsport. Do you wake up and think, wow, how good is this? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Every day. And sometimes, you know, when work gets a little bit tough and, and the, the schedule becomes a grind, you know, especially in the middle of the summer months here, you've got to tell yourself that. You've got to tell yourself, you know, um, one of my bosses once said, you know, might be a long day, but it's not a hard day. Hard days working in the mines. You work in television. I was like, yeah, that's right. So no, absolutely, as the old saying goes, living the dream for sure. And I'm, I'm glad glad to still be in the dream. There's so many things I want to talk about with you. More about broadcasting the motorsport itself. But before we get to that and where it all started for you, recently announced by NBC, one of the biggest broadcasters on the planet, that Lee Diffie from Queensland, Australia, will be calling the track and field at the upcoming Tokyo Games. That blew my mind. Blows mine too. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a big uh, it's a big responsibility and I'm still, even though I've done track and field f- for, for several years for the network, you know, I'm still, I'm still wrapping my head around it really because it's a, um, it's a big opportunity and for, you know, uh, as far as the big three, as they say at the Olympics, is gymnastics and swimming and track and field. So I know I've got a huge workload ahead in August. It is an extraordinary achievement. And you've been to previous Olympics. You, you went to, to Rio. Uh, you went to Sochi, where I saw you very briefly, where you were the king of the bobsled and the luge. But, <laughs> but athletics and track and field it, the, on an American broadcast is... I can't think of many bigger deals unless you start broadcasting the Super Bowl diff, which I'm not sure you've got in your wheelhouse just yet. That, that's the size of what we're talking about here. Can you? I'm sure it, there was an inkling or they were moving you in a certain direction, but can you take me to the phone call or the meeting or the conversation or the Zoom where some bigwig from NBC said to you, righto, mate, we want you to call the athletics, including the men's and women's 100-metre final at the Olympic Games? That, that happened... Um that happened last year, obviously prior to the postponement. Yes, um, but I, you know, you can say that you that you knew because certain producers and, and and people in management are telling you that's that's why we've that's why we've got you over here. We're steering you that way because I just I just spoke to this wonderful gentleman today, Tom Hammond. Tom had called track and field uh, at the Olympics uh, since 1992. Oof. Here they come down the track. Usain Bolt sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record, 9.68. The wind is okay. New world record. How easy was that? So, you know, um, I'm, I'm coming in in his draft. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, le- I left him a big voicemail the other day and I just said, hey, Tom, I just want to let you know, um, you know, you, I don't think your shoes can ever be filled, but I'm honoured to be the one following you and, and I'm, it's not lost on me what this opportunity is or what it represents. Um, and so what, they, what the network did is uh, a little bit of throwing you in at the deep end, but also uh, really good nurturing and guiding. So I did track and feel for them uh, several events way back in 2013. And then I had a few years away and then I came back in, uh, I think, maybe 17, 18, 18, I think I started doing track and field again. Yes. So, you know, I've done my reps and they uh, they weren't just going to let me go off and, and do my own thing. I, uh, I think maybe even more so than any motorsport that I've ever done, I would have to go in to work, into the headquarters, and I would sit in 
in a big room and I would sit with a couple of the top people who, who handle the Olympics for NBC and that we would watch tape and they'd be like, like that, I like that, I don't like that, stop doing that, that's really good. And I would have to go in for like, you know, quarterly meetings or, you know, whatever it was. And so they, uh, the attention to detail is, is, is fascinating. And, but they know that they, they're not going to let, uh, one of their big properties just be handled by somebody in their own way or their own style. It's, you've got to do it. You've got to, you've got to infuse your own style into the NBC way, if that makes sense. Mate, that is a great answer. I want to explore that a bit more because. That's something obviously we don't do here in Australia. You just sort of end up being thrown into most things. But if, as a frequent listener to the show, you know the pickle and the penguin, you will know them well. Um, uh, the pickle was pretty direct with this one, but this is what she's got for you. You ready, big boy? Yeah. Hi, Dave. Pickle here. Dad tells me that you're going to commentate on the 100 metres for NBC at the Olympics. Wow, that is so cool. I would love to do that. And it's only 10 seconds, so it's a pretty big deal. But Dad tells me you're the man for the job. But what I want to know is how much preparation do you have to do before the race and how are you feeling about it? Well, thanks, Pickle. It's lovely to finally hear a question from you to me. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm feeling uh, feeling excited. Um, I feel a little bummed that I didn't get to commentate on Usain Bolt. Uh, It would have been tremendous to be a part of the Bolt era. But then, you know, it's wide open. It's really wide open. So I'm excited about that. You are correct. It's 10 seconds or less. And uh, you've got to, um, it's taught me a skill uh, very different to any of the other kinds of racing that I've commentated that you've really got to be, I don't know, it just, it forces you to be really pinpoint with your eyes. Sometimes you don't get, sometimes you don't get a, a real handle on who's where until you can see somebody jump, but then if the field levels, you know, they could be at the 30-metre mark before you've even got some kind of a handle on it. Um, the other interesting thing, Pickle, is that if you have a field where all of the athletes are similar sizes. Yes. <laughs> you know, you don't have a tall athlete like Usain Bolt or you don't have a particularly short one or what, whatever it might be, uh, that makes it extra challenging as well. So, but uh, thanks for your question. I'm excited, and um, yeah, it'll be over. It'll be over just like that. It will. I- I'm fascinated by this as well. As was the daughter. As was my daughter. So you're going to Tokyo. So yep. you've called a lot of athletics, as you pointed out. Will you call it off what you can see, or will you call it off the monitor when you? Let's talk specifically about the the men's or women's hundred meter final. That was, that's inter- an interesting point because talking with Tom Hammond this morning, Tom said uh, I used to use the binoculars for about the first 20 to 30 metres and then I would look at the monitor. And and he said, I did that just to see if I could identify one particular thing or not. Personally, I call it off the monitor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because if I find that I'm looking up and looking down, I, I don't want to get caught in the middle. And if you're doing that over 10 seconds, you know, you, you to me, you're opening yourself up. So I think you, you've got to be an either or person. You've got to just call it looking out and then you, uh, that's difficult too because where are you sitting in the stadium? Are you right on the line? Are you t- 10 metres back from the line? Are you, mm. so, you know, I, I think just from a, from a uh, quality control perspective, I, I, I look at the monitor. Can we just delve into this a bit more if it's all right, mate, because it, it fascinates me from a broadcasting perspective. So you'll have, like calling a motor race or 
a, a lose race or a bobsled. There, there'll be a there'll be a technique to it, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've discovered what the technique is and what your technique is going to be. So, in the space of ten seconds, what points are you trying to hit in the race? Like, what is the structure of calling a hundred meter race? Do you know what I mean? So, so the structure. So, I commentate with Ado Bolden, uh, four time Olympic medalist and cool. just a, a legend. He's he's such a great guy. Still holds the Commonwealth Games hundred meter yep. record. Um, uh, actually, many, many of Addo's greatest moments, uh, Bruce McAvaney called. Um, so uh, what Addo and I will do like a tag team before before they're in the blocks. Yep. Right? So you say, here's, here's Mark Howard, the 30-year-old Australian, and he's done this and this and this. And Addo will say, do you know, Lee, his training is later. And he'll do that. Like we'll do a little boom, boom, boom. We'll do a give and go all the way across the field, all the lane introductions. On the inside, very inside, is Fred Curley in two. Kyrie King, Andrew Hudson. That's your full field. Noah Lyles is in five. When you come to the Olympic trials, you almost discard the paper. You trust what your eyes are telling you. And then in a 100, once they're in the blocks, Addo might have one closing statement or whatever. Front and centre in the white top. Fastest man in the world in 2021, Trayvon Bromel. But then as soon as the gun goes off, that's all me, all the way to the line. I say the time, boom, Addo comes in. He's one of the most brilliant analysts. And then he starts just dissecting it. And he's like rapid fire. He's like a machine gun. He's incredible. So in the in the 100 metre itself, in the 10 seconds, is there a structure to that? Are you trying to identify all runners? No. Are you trying to say who's where? So tell me about the, the actual call of the race. Well, you're looking you're looking for who got a jump, right? Who got yeah. out of the blocks. And then you're looking for if that person gets out of the blocks and has a really good drive phase and then and, and then they're up and out there, if they're the clear leader, who's coming with them? And who was the pre-race favourite? And are they in a are they in a position okay. of prominence or are they struggling? Yeah. A really good start from Brunel. Ronnie Baker's going with him. And so you you try and throw in all of those ingredients within like you know within that ten second frame, and obviously you hope for a close finish. Or if it's not a close finish, if it's a runaway winner, then you, you're going to, well, either way, you're going to focus on the time, aren't you? Everyone's intrigued about the 100 metre time. So, yeah, there's all of these elements in the, yeah. the elements in the, in the pot uh, that all kind of happen very quickly. On the outside, Makai Williams. Here we go. Trayvon Rommel wins the men's 100. He's off to his second Olympics. And if it is tight, super tight, and I'm sure this has happened to you in your experience, and you're not 100% sure, right on the line, what, what do you do, Diff? Do you take a punt? Do you go with your gut? Do you delay it for that half a second till you see the timing monitor? How do you play out a really tight finish? I, I think I've probably done a little bit of all of the above. Yeah, okay. Everything you said. Yeah. You go, with your, you go with your gut who you think you had it, but then you can say if you're unsure, I think you, you need to be fair to the audience and say that that was close because that's what we would say if we were sitting at home watching. It's right, tight, it's we? tight, it's tight. Who got yep. it? Who got it? You, yep. Like, who got it? You know, you, you kind of – so you don't want to be disingenuous to the to the viewers. Um, so, yeah, you kind of uh, – a little a little bit of all of the above. And, and you're going to know – you're going to know within a matter of seconds, yep. you know, right? So, so Diff, the other side to it, obviously, to give our Australian audience 
a, a greater understanding. I don't need an exact number. I need a general number of people that will be watching your call throughout the United States of America and its affiliates on NBC. How many people will be watching your call the race, do you reckon? Oh, that's tough, but, I mean, here's a, here's a somewhat of a yardstick, right? We had uh, we had the the peak the peak viewership uh, of the Indy 500 uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, 7.1 million viewers cool. watching the Indy 500. Right. So for the so for the final of the hundred meters, it's got to be somewhere between 20 to 30 million viewers. You would you would have it a guess. Okay, and then it will be replayed in eternity once it's there. It's there. Yeah, yeah. Then the obvious question is you have tremendous experience and confidence and belief. Do you take a mind – do you allow yourself to think, geez, what if I stumble? What if I get it wrong? And how do you (laughs) overcome that? Because that's a natural question for people that don't do the job. Like I've never caught a 100 metre and I think, geez, if I got tied up on lane six's name on the 12 metre mark, I'm not recovering till the 75 metre mark. How do you deal with the the horrible spectre of failure and what do you do to self? Like, is there a mental process like an athlete to put yourself in a good space? Because let's not beat around the bush, mate. This is, I can say it to you, this is a huge, huge moment in your broadcasting career. Sure, sure. Um, I would just say my my mental process is you don't let yourself you don't let okay. yourself get in that position. Yeah, um, great answer. Uh, the last the last one is that you know that we spoke about for sure. I've been in those close calls, and you're like, uh, you know, which which you know who is it? But that's different to getting the getting the winner completely wrong. You know, I, yeah. I think. Um, I've had it a couple of times in in motor racing yeah. where where within the closing meters the wind change and I've got my big wind that's totally different to a 100 meter thing that yeah. you know it was it was in some sports car racing and it was like you know a tenth of a second or so it was like the closest finish ever in the series history and oh some of my colleagues have had some great fun with me over the years <laughs> They're like, do you remember who won that race? Do you remember who won that? Okay, Diff, we we got stuck right into an area that I I wasn't truly thinking we were going to, but part of this podcast is to show people you can come from anywhere and achieve anything, and your story summarises this as well as any athlete I've ever had on the show, and you're a pretty athletic bloke yourself. We both know that, Diff. Where did it start, mate? Tell me about your family background because you are not a silver spoon a style operator by any stretch of the imagination. No, I grew up in a uh, I grew up in a, a working class suburb of Brisbane called Carroll Park. Um, I don't believe it's called Carroll Park anymore because uh, I guess the local authorities I thought maybe it had a too much of a negative stigma to it, which makes me laugh. Um, but yeah, so very very humble very, uh, upbringing. Lived in a pretty small house with my mum and dad, brother and sister, and one of my grandmothers. And uh, Nan lived with us until we were 15, so pretty close confines. Um, one shower, one toilet, <laughs> shared shared uh, shared bedrooms. Um, but we, we, you know, it was a pretty good childhood. I thought, you know, we, we were always out kicking a footy or playing cricket, and we we had we had uh, some some push bikes, and we had some motorcycles that w- that we raced. That I started racing from a young age. So no, it was. Um, Pretty, pretty humble. Mum and dad, uh, working class people. Dad was a painter and a sign writer, and mum was a teacher's aide. So, 
you know, I guess for our generation, pretty normal upbringing. When you were playing cricket in the backyard, who did you want to be? Um, I didn't necessarily want to be a, a, a batsman. I wanted to be Dennis Lilly. Of course you did. Yeah. Did, or, or, did. Tom, or Tom, or Tom, Jeff Thompson. <laughs> we we actually we actually uh, one, one of our neighbourhood mates, Michael Cato. He used to be able to fling his fling his arm back like Tomo, <laughs> and then give it the big big whooshka. <laughs> so um, it, obsession can be a positive and a negative. In this discussion, it's positive. When did your obsession with motorsport begin, and how did it begin? You, you mentioned you had motorbikes, which is not usual growing up uh, as no, a young bloke. We we were the odd bods in the neighbourhood yeah. um, because because everyone it was stick and ball sports right everyone played either rugby league or or, or cricket uh, or maybe rugby union um, rugby union certainly wasn't in our area or soccer played soccer right so um, everybody knew in our neighbourhood and especially with my mum working at the school that the Diffies were the motorbike people <laughs> um, so I was introduced to it through my dad um, my. Dad's father, he used to race bikes in Victoria and for whatever reason, he wouldn't let my dad do it. And so I think dad lived vicariously myself and my, through myself and my brother. And uh, so I first started racing at the local motorcycle club uh, called Trailblazers when I was six years old. And uh, that's, in fact, where Daryl Beattie, our, our dear friend and, and colleague, uh, that's where he started riding as well because Daryl's mum was my preschool teacher. Right. And so he he won a motorbike off the Jackie Mac breakfast show and uh, he used to ride it in the local bush and the local industrial estate and the cops were always chasing him. So his parents came to my mum and dad and said, hey, listen, where do you, where do you take your boys to ride? So they brought Daryl there and, and uh, as soon as he got on a bike there, he was like off to the right. He was gone. That's one of the great stories that he won his first motorbike. So you're obsessed with motorsport. Did you want to, is that what you wanted to be as a kid growing up? Did you want to race motorbikes or did you early on realise that blokes like Daryl were on, on another planet? Yeah, I, I realised I realized that, that that I knew I knew where I was. <laughs> I knew where my, my ability level was. No, I, I think, I mean, I loved, I, I liked doing it and it was fun, but um. I, uh, at one stage, I thought I was going to be a farmer. You know, I studied agriculture and animal husbandry at school. I went to <laughs> Corinda State High School in Brisbane. They had a, they had an ag and animal husbandry and horticulture specialty unit. Um, I thought I was going to do that. And then I took a different direction and I, I went to teachers college and I was doing anything and everything as, uh, I, I worked on a, a tomato farm and a grape farm, um, with a really good mate of mine, Nigel Grieve who was four years older than me, and uh, he went on to become a PE teacher. And when he was teaching PE, he went to work at a local gym. So I thought, well, I should do the same thing because everything he does is pretty cool. So uh, I went I went and got some uh, additional training uh, certifications and I started working at the gym that he worked at. And then uh, he worked at Ipswich Grammar School and um, I was still working at the gym. I was, do- I was being a chippies labourer. This is after I graduated uni. Yeah. Um, uh, cause I wasn't ready to teach. And so I was doing everything. I worked at Warner Brothers Movie World on the Gold Coast. Uh, I had about three or four jobs at once. And then, um, there was an opportunity to, to work at Ipswich Grammar School as a, as a PE teacher. So, uh, I kind of followed Nigel a lot. You know, I was in his draft. Every, every move he made, I was about three or four years later. You mentioned the gym. Now, often there's urban legends, and I know some of these urban legends because as we'll get to, we, we, we used to work together. 
And the first thing when I was introduced to, and I reckon it was Daryl <laughs> Beatty, and who I didn't really know, or as Bill Woods said, you got to ask him about being an aerobics competitor. And I thought, I, can't, I don't know this bloke, I can't ask him about. But you need to tell the good people because this is, I know this is fact, this one. It is fact. It is fact. Uh, I just did it for two years. So the, the gym I worked at was called Jinder Lee All Sports and uh, – and I, I, did, I started off just, just working in the gym, then started doing some basics, you know, gym instruction. And then I used to do the circuits, which was really fun. I loved doing the circuits because I could talk and I didn't know it, but that was, that, that was actually additional training for my teaching and for my commentary because I was talking the whole time and I was talking to doctors and lawyers and nurses and different people and what did you do at the weekend? And I was, and I'm there and I'm running the circuits. I'm looking at the clock and who's doing what and helping them. And so it was great on the spot communicative training, uh, in a way, as well as, you know, just being around training all the time and being fit. And then, then, um, my boss at the time, he said, listen, we want to enter some people, um, in the Reebok Australian Aerobics Championships. Yes. And uh, yes, he goes, Steve. I want to see, I want to see if you, I want to see if you've got any rhythm. Have you ever done aerobics? <laughs> I was like, I've never done aerobics. <laughs> so anyway, he made me do the aerobics class the next day and he stood up the back and watched me just be a participant. He's like, yep, you'll do. Cause he was an Australian aerobics champion himself. Of course he He's was. He's like, you'll do. Uh, and we're going to put you with the owner's daughter and, uh, and you're going to do mixed doubles and I'll train you. Doesn't matter if you don't know what you're doing. I'll just train you to a routine and off we go. So. I did. I did it. I did that in the. Uh, when was that? In the early nineties. Yeah. So Full lycra uh, type setup. Oh yeah, mate. Yeah. Fully embarrassing. You'll never see the pictures. Like an all in onesie or a tight pant or what were you going with? You. There was all of the above, Howie. There was all of the above. <laughs> what was your favourite colour of leotard? Ah. <laughs> uh... I don't know. We're going over rocky ground here. I can see you want to move on, mate. I said to you at the start, as I did to every guest, if anything comes up that you want to cut out, tell me we'll cut it out. I pray you don't text me tomorrow and say, can we cut out that aerobic stuff? No, 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 I won't do that. A quick break from Diff. Next up on the show, we are going, what about this, world-class international athlete style with one of the most famous names in extreme sports, triple Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. Hmm, Sean White. Now, like many successful people, Sean has been faced with doubters throughout his journey. I really took it as a win for all of us and um, so many parent-teacher conferences are sort of people saying, your kid's going to be nothing or, you know, you'll never make it. And, like, what is snowboarding... Huh. Anyways, like we might as well have been like, oh, we're going to be professional yo-yo. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to the, yo- the yoers out there. Um, I do appreciate your skills because I am terrible at it. That's why it's, it's, it's actually something I wish I was better at. But, you know, like uh, sword fighting or something, I don't know, something random. And, yeah. and uh, or, or you know, yeah, and it just, it just, we had done it at that point. Every, every, bit of uh, uh, effort along the way and the, the hardship of it all. And, and you know, my, my parents had like taken a loan on their house to help me pay for this whole thing. And it all had been worth it for this moment. And um, and so that was wild. And then after that, it just pushed me to this level of uh, recognition and success that I'd never really known. You know, I was on the cover of Rolling Stone. And um, when it came out, there's a little blurb about, you know, how 
there's only two other athletes to ever be on the cover of Rolling Stone, and that was Muhammad Ali and Michael Michael Jordan. Wow. And so I was like, and now me, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was it was wild. And so every everything that was happening at that point was was pretty, you know, um, uncharted terrain, and um, and it was it was wild. Absolutely pumped to have Sean White next up on the show. On we go with Diff. So, mate, you, you're working as a school teacher, and uh, you're making uh, a bit of a name for yourself on the side as a professional aerobics uh, competitor. When did you first? What was the first thing you ever commentated on? When were you first given a microphone by someone, and how? And told talk about this. I think I was 20. I was 20 years old, so I was still I was still at uni, and it was the local motorcycle club. It was the Ipswich Motorcycle Club, uh, and they wanted somebody to do their just PA, their public address. And um, they said, now, listen, young fella, we'll be able to pay you too. You can get $60. We'll pay you $60. And I think I called about 95 races that day. <laughs> uh, now, they were short. They were short. They were like four-lap races. But um, it was a long day sitting in a wooden tower in, in Tivoli Raceway, you know, outside of Ipswich. And uh, the lap-scoring ladies were behind me, and I was just sitting out on the front uh, kind of uh, porch area, perch area, and I had a, an old transistor radio and a microphone and, you know, someone would bring me some water or a can of Coke or something and I'd commentate. And then in between races when I wanted a rest, I'd just turn the radio on and put the microphone next to the radio <laughs> and that would go out on the speakers. Oh, DJ Diffie. And then uh, DJ Diff, that was, that was how it all started, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we don't have time to progress all the way to the Men's Olympic 100 final in step-by-step. How did you give me a brief summary of how you ended up from being a school teacher who was uh, calling some races on a weekend for sixty bucks to getting offered a position at Network Ten, which is where our stories meet, but further down the track. So I was living in Brisbane and 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 doing a bunch of all these other things that I was telling you about, including school teaching, and then the the, the race commentary opportunities just kind of grew. Um, you know that was in that was in Ipswich in Queensland, and the guy Glenn Krauss, who was at the uh, track in Toowoomba called Echo Valley, which is where Will Power, Australia's uh-huh. first Indy 500 winner, that's where he started out of as well. Course. He's like, "Oh, we've got a job for you." And then there were some people that were in Ballina in New South Wales. They said, "Oh, we, we heard you up in Toowoomba. Would you like to come down?" And it just kind of grew like that. Um, Supercross in Australia, Phil Christensen at Supercross was a huge opportunity for me. It was like a step up from the local tracks to working at Rod Laver Arena and Sydney Entertainment Centre and Brisbane Entertainment Centre. And then uh, I started to do more travelling. I'd, I'd come to Sydney's Oran Park, just still again PA, and that's where I work with Greg Rust. Hmm. Uh, I used to, I used to, I used to stay the Sunday night and uh, at his mum and dad's house in in Sydney. And I'd sleep in a spare bed and then get up and get the first flight back to Brisbane to try and go back to school <laughs> to try and make an eight thirty wow. assembly, you know, back at school. And um, it just kind of kept going like that. And then. Um, in, in 1996, end of 95, 96, I'd only taught for, um, two and a half years. And I just said to mum and dad, I got to, you know, I'm losing jobs because I live in Brisbane. I've got to get to Sydney. I've got to try and make this happen. And, um, so they supported me the best they could. I moved in, uh, to a room in Alexandria in Sydney's inner west and again, did substitute school teaching and a bunch of things. And then an opportunity came up through Paul Morris and his dad to commentate at the, um, 
the Super Tourers, which wasn't, they were the two litre Super Tourers, not, not yep. V8 supercars. That was the rival then. And the, um, the owner, and I bug people all the time about, can I do this? Can I do that? And can I show you my showreel, which I don't really have one, but I'll, you know, I just used to hammer people all the time. And they said, yeah, we've got an opportunity for you to come to Lakeside Raceway in Brisbane to do, to do the, like, you know, to do some interviews. And I said, oh, that they, they think, thought I still lived in Brisbane. And they said, uh, so we'd like you to come. And I said, okay, well, I live in Sydney. They're like, oh. oh. So anyway, I went and I got that opportunity. And uh, they were looking for a commentator, not a pit reporter per se. And I convinced them that I could do it. And uh, they made me go into an edit suite in Sydney in a post-production house. They cut five minutes and they made me just commentate it in the edit suite. And then the, the bosses said, yep, you'll do. And uh, that was broadcast on 10, but I wasn't working for Channel 10. And um, just as the year went on, uh, I got to meet the then head of sport, Mike Ordsent, and he mm-hmm. said, "Listen, he said, um, he said you need you need to uh, you need to get into TV more. You need to learn TV more." He goes, "How about how about I uh, talk to Craig Reynolds at Sports Tonight and get you a freelance job at Sports Tonight?" And I was thinking, "Holy shit, I can't even type." How am I going to be in one of Australia's biggest newsrooms? And I was like, yes, that'd be great. Yes, yes, that'd be great. I can do that. (laughs) I can do that. Tonight, will the Bulldogs bite the Saints in AFL underlights? In night rugby league, storm over Parramatta. And uh, so, you know, that, I, I, that happened and uh, I was doing, I, I took every shift that I could get that they gave me. And, uh, you know, like you did, mate, you, you'd be sitting in front, of a, in front of a monitor with a tape machine logging Sheffield Shield cricket matches yep. or logging NBA matches from the, I did, I took every shift I could get. I worked Christmas Day, I worked New Year's Day, I worked Easter, I worked, I never said no. And uh, towards the end of 1996, Mike Ordsent came to me and, and he said, hey, listen, we've got a big opportunity for you. We've got uh, what was to become V8 Supercars. It was still called the Australian Touring Car Championship then. And he said, we want you to be the host of it and you're going to work alongside Barry Sheen and Mark Osler. Hmm. And I was like, I nearly, I nearly was physically sick on his desk, you know, because that to me was like unachievable heights of television, you know, for, from where I came from. And so, um, yeah, and it just kind of spun forward from there. All right, the revs rise. Get ready. This is race two of three. Lounds on the inside. Skate from the outside. Will the enforcer get a good jump? Away we go. Whoa, and Lounds pop them down. Look through the middle. Whoa, it's the it does. Uh, yeah. And Stephen Richards, the outside. Oh, that was a bright oh, start. Look at oh, this. No, look at that. That's so tender. Oh, no. Who's got it? That's great. Oh, oh, my oh, goodness, God, that's mate. That's a nasty... Oh, whoa, Craig whoa. Lowndes, car one, our championship leader. You could see there was a contact there between two cars. It set off a chain reaction. So, mate, people will struggle to understand in the world of TV, that you, which is very different to what you described happening at NBC and, and coaching you through calling athletics. But in Australian TV, from your experience and my experience, there is no real teaching. You just pick it up as you go. So how were you learning? What were you basing your commentary and your presenting on? Or was it just... You know. Just what? Just well, I done. I done enough. I done not enough. I done plenty of of laps and t- plenty of reps out in the middle of nowhere, just calling races. So I was confident in my race calling ability. What I didn't know and what I needed to learn was television. Yeah, 
So if you wanted me to call a race, I could have called a dog race down the street, but it didn't matter. I was confident that I could call a race purely because of the of the you know hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of races that I'd called out in you know in and around country Australia um, and, and metropolitan areas as well. But I needed to learn, so I would sit in this in this little house where I was renting a room in Alexandria, and I'd get the VHS machine and I'd tape Sports Tonight and the five o'clock news every night. And I'd watch people like Tony Peters and huh. whoever, you know, Leanne West and Billy Woods and Matty White, whoever was doing the, the yarns. And like you said, no one teaches you this, right? So I'd say, okay, they speak for a bit and then somebody gets interviewed. They speak for a bit more, then somebody gets interviewed again. I love and it. And they speak. And so I kind of just learned, like, like, okay, there's a pattern. Oh, that this one started with somebody speaking. Then there was the voiceover. And so I'd write down all these different patterns from the different stories to try and figure out how to how to do it, like how to, you know. This is where your story gets for what I find really interesting, mate, because you were then flying you were the V8s had never been bigger in Australia. You guys were an unbelievable commentary team with Mark Osler, Barry Sheen, uh, Rusty, then Daz eventually got involved. And then you did what I'm now going to call from here on in a Scotty McLaughlin. You said, I'm now a big fish here, but I'm prepared to chuck that all in and I'm going to go to England and go again and be a small fish in a big pond, which not many people do. What was the thought process behind that, mate? How was it received at 10? And why did you not just stick with what you're doing? Because if you had, you'd still be calling V8s now and you'd be one of the most recognisable people on Australian television. Um, I just, I, I went to Le Mans in France, the 24 hours of Le Mans in 1998 and 1999. And it was to do a, a documentary on the 24 hours um, with a dear friend called Tim Jardine. And uh, it was on 10. And I happened to be there with a dear friend and a, a broadcaster and great businessman from Australia, John Smales. And we we're standing in the pit lane at Le Mans and he says, what do you think about all this, Diff? And I said, oh, it's unbelievable. Like, I can't believe I'm back here again and this, the track and the stadium. He goes, no, 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 not that. He goes, you being here. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you working in the Northern Hemisphere. He goes, you can do this. You could be here. And I was like... Wow. And so that kind of got the thought process going. And I'd met a guy called Andrew Marriott and, and he said, listen, if you come over, if you come to London, I can't give you a full-time job, but I could give you some voiceover week at work on a Friday morning. It might be enough for you to pay the rent. And I was like, you know what? That combined with my drive to do Formula One, I wanted to, I left Australia to, <laughs> it's, it's going to sound like pie in the sky stuff now. Um, but I, I was so driven then and I was so, I wasn't going to stop at anything. I was, I, in my mind, I was going to replace Murray Walker when Murray retired from Formula One. And so that was my, that was, that was target number one. And so I even rang Bernie Eccleston from my home in, in, uh, in Ermington in Sydney. Where I was well, you there. rang him? Bernie? I rang, I cold called Bernie. And and uh, I got his secretary and, and she was like, um, yeah, sorry, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Lee Diffie from Channel 10 Australia. I want to talk to Mr Eccleston about, about Formula One. Oh, okay. 
So at about, you know, whatever it was, two in the morning, that next one, he called me back. And, and she no. said, no, Mr. Eccleston, Mr. Eccleston's ready to talk to you now. And I said, oh, hi. I said, this is who I am and this is what I'd like to do and this is what I've so, done and this is what I've, you know. So you told him that you wanted to call Formula One yeah. on the phone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Diff, that's outstanding. <laughs> that is real and, uh, big nuts material. And um, he's like, well, that's really good. It sounds exciting. Uh, this is the person that you need to call, da, da, da. And I did it again. I did it again several months later, and he called back again. So I really? spoke to him twice, yeah, from the same bedroom phone in Sydney. And, um, say, you know, say what you like about Bernie. He, uh, for me, I thought that was awesome, and, and he gave me some extra little motivation. So, um Anyway, I, I annoyed I annoyed not only Bernie Eccleston, but I annoyed Andrew Marriott uh, all the way up. And from that from that June in Le Mans, uh, in the January of the very next year, so from from June nineteen ninety nine to January of two thousand, I'd, I'd packed up and moved to London. Diff, as you know, my first job was working for Bernie Eccleston in saying. In the same way now that if I work for Fox, I work for Rupert Murdoch. So it's not like I'm seeing him in the office every day, but I just remember walking again out of the loo one day. We talked about Robert Redford in the player profile. Out of the loo one day, I'd never met him. And he just looked at me. He's obviously a little chap. And he said, and what do you do here? And I gave him a brief rundown. He said, righto, am I paying you the right amount? And I was like, I think so. And he said, well, whatever you do, do it well, son. And off he walked. And I was like, okay, should I have asked for a pay rise in that situation? I, I was never quite sure. So, mate, you went you, you went to England and this is a theme with what you've done. Did you ever have doubt and think, I'm throwing away a tremendous opportunity, which is I'm sure what Channel 10 told you at the time. It probably, uh, Mike Oddson, you mentioned, and and, and uh, our former boss and, and great man, David White, did they say to you, gee whiz, you're throwing away a bit here or not? Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. yeah it I didn't, bet they uh, did. It didn't, it didn't go down well. And even a guy who had a big influence in your career in Australia, um, uh, Murray Lomax. Yes, the great uh, Murray. Yeah, there was David, there was Mike Oddson, there was Murray Lomax, there was Scott Young. And, um, yeah, they, they gave me a full court press. Basically, what, what are you doing? You know, what, you don't even have a job to go to. What, you don't, don't throw this away because the door might not be open if you want to come back, you know. So, um, but I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't, and I, I'm not trying to make this sound more dramatic than what it was, but I couldn't have doubts and I couldn't, I couldn't look back because it wasn't one of those situations where you could be half-assed. You were either all in or all out. And so I was all in. Um, and, Went to London, uh, stayed stayed in people's you know spare bedrooms, and I, I was married at the time. My first wife, um, you know, she she was a trooper about it. She was like, "Yep, let's go get them." And um, uh, you know, stayed in people's bedrooms for a little while, borrowed cars, and then within you know we had we, <laughs> the money money was running out. By the time we rented a place ourselves to live, and um, within a matter of weeks of being there. Um, I got a call from the BBC, um, which which Barry Sheen uh, had had been working the back corridors, hmm. you know, uh, to get me on the World Superbike Championship, and I landed. That was you know that was my first big job overseas. Where and within 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 a very short period of time, I was on a plane and I was I was off to South Africa. And funnily enough, one of the first jobs I ever did was back at back at Phillip Island in Australia. Oh, what have been? So I moved, I'd moved all the way to London. <laughs> they sent me all the way back to Australia. <laughs> the Go Show has come to town and Go and Wins race one at Phillip Island. His first since 1990. 
from from memory to to cut a long story short as the saying goes with Craig Johnson on his episode did you i think you got really close in a short period of time to that formula 1 dream didn't you did you get right down when when Murray was transitioning out have i got that right yeah 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 they they were doing so i was i was working at the bbc in 2000 2001 and 2002 was going to be the year that Murray... So during 2001, they were doing some some trial things where James Allen, who was part of the, the then ITV um, uh, 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 pit crew, pit, he was part of the pit reporting crew, or he was the pit reporter, uh, they would bring him in and, and, you know, when Murray would say Murray would pick some races, maybe some long-haul races that he didn't want to go to, too far to travel or whatever, and so they'd try James Allen in there and then they would try Ben Edwards in there as well. And um, anyway, the final three uh, uh, at ITV, like who's going to replace Murray, it was James Allen, Ben Edwards and myself. I got a oh. call-up and um, I had to go and see a gentleman called Brian Barwick. And, and again, you know, Maybe for, for, you know, you do a wonderful job of motivating people on this podcast, for particularly young people, um, you know, about we say have a go and don't take no for an answer and always treasure, uh, really uh, treasure and cherish your contacts because it was my producer at the BBC who helped me get in front of Brian Barwick and, and a letter justifying why I should be considered because uh, his name is Mark Wilkin. Mark was was the former BBC Formula One producer and he produced Murray Walker and James mm. Hunt. And so, you know, it's, if you can prove your, your work ethic and your skills in front of other people, you don't know who those people know. And so um, that worked out pretty well and it was, a, it was, it was, it wasn't hilarious. It was quite intimidating when I finally got that meeting and had to go in because Brian Barwick, wasn't messing around when I got to ITV headquarters and it was kind of one of those classics sit back on the, on the, uh, in your chair and put your feet up on the desk. And he was like, why the hell, tell me, tell me why the hell I should replace Murray Walker with you. And Senna sprints away, but Alain Prost takes the lead. It's happened. Alain Prost has taken the advantage. Senna is trying to go through on the inside and it's happened immediately. This is amazing. Senna goes off at the first corner, but what has happened to Prost? He has gone off too. And I think, you know, my voice was going, well, you know, well, sir. <laughs> so it, it, it didn't go your way. And like anyone's journey, and that's the great thing about this show, we often show that to have success, you have to have failure. That's not failure, but, mate, it, at that stage, as a bloke that grew up as a teacher, in a short period of time to have the opportunity to broadcast Formula One to the world because ITV for the world feed, so that we would have heard you here in Australia. When you get that yep. phone call, Diff, or that email, whatever it is, to say, sorry, you haven't got the job, is that just, ah, oh, well, I was a long shot or is that, a, like, how do you get on with, geez, I was within two other blokes of achieving my absolute dream? Geez, you're close to it. You're bloody close R- to it really there. Really close and... and- what I like now, many years later, is that the three of us, um, uh, Ben Edwards, James Allen, myself, we're all mates, we all get on and we all got eventually what we wanted, right? Yes. So James got the job at ITV, Ben ended up getting the job at the BBC when F1 went there and I ended up calling Formula 1 for NBC here. So it was kind of it was kind of cool. So I thought, well, 
you know, I, I, I can't get the Formula One job. What's the next next best thing? Is is IndyCar? And so I had some I had some contacts there, and um, work. <laughs> you know, I say I say to your young listeners, cherish your contacts because I used to get free clothes from No Fear, and my friends who <laughs> ran my my fr- my friends who ran the No Fear office in London. They had a, they had an American friend of theirs called Jim Hancock who used to do all of this marketing and stuff with CART and was like this with the CART CEO. And they had arranged for me just to meet Jim to have a beer in London this one afternoon. And he's like, so tell me what's going on. Say, so, oh, I missed out on the Formula One job. I wouldn't mind going to America to, uh, to do IndyCar. He goes, stand by, picks up the phone and he rings the CEO of CART and he says, I'm sitting here with this young guy. This is his name. This is what he does. Do you know Formula One wants him? Why doesn't IndyCar <laughs> want him? And he goes, okay, okay, okay. So he goes, let's go to the pub. He goes, I think we'll get a call. So we weren't even to the pub yet, and I get a call from this guy called Don Helms. He's like, Lee, it's Don Helms at CART. We'd like to make you an offer to come to America. I was like, Beauty, let's go and have a beer. Wow. <laughs> that is the end of Lee Diffie Part A. We are only just warming up, so see you for Part B. Listener.